Welcome to Connecting with Dr. Kim Swales. Relationships are probably where we spend the most time and the most energy in our lives. They can be the sources of our greatest joy, but they can also cause us the deepest pain and frustration. This podcast is about helping you connect a little bit better every day in your relationships. Welcome to episode 52 of Connecting with Dr. Kim Swales. Please take a moment to hit the subscribe button, leave a five-star rating or a positive review for the podcast. My guest today is going to talk about toxic positivity and acceptance and commitment therapy for couples. My guest is Dr. Abby Lev. She is a psychotherapist, author, mediator, and executive coach in San Francisco, California. She's the director of the Bay Area CBT Center, a clinic that specializes in cognitive behavioral therapy to help individuals and couples break unhelpful patterns, develop healthier habits, and improve all areas of life. She has also co-authored three books on utilizing CBT to strengthen relationships, and she's presented her research at numerous conferences. Dr. Lev is also the founder of CBT Online, an online platform that connects people with online therapists who specialize in behavioral therapy and offers CBT resources such as webinars, e-courses, videos, worksheets, mindfulness, audio, and much more. Welcome so much, Dr. Lev. I'm really happy to have you here today. I'm excited to be here. So uh, there were so many things when I looked at your resume and everything that you do that I wanted to talk to you about. But one of the things I really wanted to start talking about is toxic positivity, because I see this term, particularly on social media, ironically, more than my clients talk about it, but it's very popular. It's in the popular press a lot. And so can you talk about what toxic positivity is and why is it kind of being talked about so much? Well, I'm glad it's being talked about. I didn't know it was being talked about. So I'm glad that we're addressing it because it's an issue that shows up in our society where we have decided to label certain emotions as good and certain emotions as bad. Like if we're feeling anxious or lonely or embarrassed or ashamed, we we don't want to have those experiences. And then also then in the greater culture, we then encourage everyone to to abide by these rules of expressing the more positive emotions and trying to avoid and resist the negative ones, right? I mean, I think the best example of toxic positivity is when when you see someone and you go, how are you? Good. How are you? Mm -hmm. That's a great example of, right? Mm -hmm. Because nobody ever goes, how are you? Well, I do. I go, I'm anxious or I'm having a hard day or I'm feeling kind of down. Mm-hmm. And then you see the other person looks a little confused. So when we're living in a culture of, of toxic positivity, our emotions, we want certain emotions to be expressed and then other ones not to be expressed. Mm-hmm. Or we, we send this message within the psychological field that we can help people kind of get rid of things, right? Like mm-hmm. reduce your anxiety, right? Feel less depressed, feel less lonely. So we sell this idea. For example, the worst thing you could say to somebody who's feeling really anxious is calm down. Don't worry about it, right? Relax. As soon as you feel stressed out, if somebody goes, relax, don't worry about it. 
the most likely thing is you're going to get more and more anxious and upset. And then the idea is that we have control over the thoughts that our mind is popping or control over the sensations that show up for us. If a lion walked into our room right now, you know, we would go into fight or flight and our heart would start racing and our hands would start shaking and we would have a physiological response uh, and a very evolutionarily beneficial one, right? We would want to be afraid of a lion. And yet we kind of get these messages from society that we can control our internal experiences in the same way that we could control external objects in the world. Mm-hmm. So if, I, if, if a pen makes me anxious, I could take the pen and put it in the garbage. But if a thought makes me anxious or I'm experiencing anxiety as a feeling or as a, a sensation, those are not really in our control. The, the only thing in our control there is how we want to relate to these experiences mm-hmm. and relating to these experiences with self-compassion and kindness and mindfulness and acceptance is radically different than relating to it with the idea that we should change them, control them, avoid them, or that we even can do that. Mm -hmm. So one of the ways I see toxic positivity coming up in the work that I do with people is somebody is feeling anxious about something and they take it to a friend or a sister or a partner. And the person says like, oh, well, think positive thoughts. Like, well, you don't know anything yet. Let's just think the best. Let's just focus on the positive. It'll be okay. It'll be okay. Everything will work out. On some level, I think, well, that sounds like optimism, right? And that sounds like trying to kind of cheer somebody up, but it can be really damaging to the person who's experiencing the worry or anxiety. And so can you talk about that? And like, how, how does that impact our relationships? And what do you do? Like, I've had that happen to me where I'm talking to maybe my best friend or my sister, and I know they're well-intentioned. How do right. I say like, this is not helping. <laughs> yes, it's the worst. It's the worst thing to hear when you're yeah. having an experience because it's very invalidating, right? Mm-hmm. There's a way that it's really minimizing, undermining, and invalidating of the experience that you're having, mm-hmm. the emotional, physical experience of it. I think that what you just said is fair to say. That's that's not helpful. Mm-hmm. It's, it's also good to guide people. So for mm-hmm. example, with my clients, I like to teach them the difference between reassurance Mm. versus problem solving versus validating. Mm. And so I'll often ask clients and sometimes, you know, people in my life, if they're sharing something, you know, I'll say, are you just wanting kind of, are you just wanting to vent? Are you needing validation? Do you need me to listen? Or are you needing some sort of problem solving for this? Or are you needing reassurance? Mm -hmm. Often, you know, we live in a society where people's number one tool is usually reassurance. Mm. And reassurance looks really different from validating. So for example, if you say, I think my boss is mad at me, I'm feeling really scared. If I want to reassure you, I could go, oh, don't worry about it. Your boss didn't seem that mad. You're not, it's not like you're going to get fired. They're not going to do anything bad. Right? Don't worry about it. It's all going to be okay. Mm-hmm. That's the reassurance. If we wanted to problem solve it, we would go, do you want to start looking for other jobs? Do you Mm -hmm. want to talk with your boss? Are you needing more feedback? So that would be an example more of problem solving. Or I could just give you advice. If I'm giving you advice, it's not very collaborative. I'm just going, Mm -hmm. this is what you should do. Mm -hmm. Now, the best thing that we all want and we're all craving for and yearning and we lack it so much is validation. 
Yeah. And validation doesn't mean that we're validating the person's beliefs or their behaviors. It just means we're validating their feelings, their sensations, and their experience. So we say things like, it, it, this is really scary. Yeah. It, it makes sense that you're nervous. It makes sense that you're scared. You could even relate a little bit. I would be feeling nervous if I was in your position. But validating mm. is what we do with with little kids and with babies, right? If they're screaming and they're crying and they're upset, we don't go, you know, hey, is it that you're needing more milk or is it that you're needing this? What's going on? Calm down. Don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. We kind of go, oh, what's going on? You feel scared or you feel mm-hmm. sad or I'm here for you. It mm-hmm. is really scary. Validation is usually what most people want. Mm-hmm. And the best way to go about it is actually to start with validation. And when the person is already feeling heard and seen, maybe then move into problem solving or advice or reassurance. Yeah, they're so much more open to hearing anything once they feel validated. I can see in my clients when I validate them, this, I, I'm, you can see me, but for the listeners who can't, I'm taking a deep sigh. My shoulders are going down. And I see it with my kids too. When I just say like, oh, you're feeling really stressed. You know, that, that was really frustrating for you. It's like, wow, you get it. And then I think people are so much more open to receiving the reassurance or even the problem solving if, if, they're, if they want that too. Validation is so powerful when I when I notice the things that you're referring to because people literally their faces change, their expressions mm-hmm. change, their body language changes. And when you see it, you're like, wow, this is such a powerful tool. And then it really makes you think how as a society we're just so deprived of that because of mm-hmm. toxic positivity. It's so well, hard for us to just go, whoa, it makes sense you're feeling this. So why, Dr. Lev? So I'm working with some couples right now that I, this is like, I think their biggest stumbling block. And when I teach them the empathy skills, I teach them the empathic responder skills. They say, well, you know, if I do that, that's going to seem so inauthentic. That's going to seem so corny. I just, you know, I've really pondered honestly for 20 years because you do it all day. I do it all day, not just in work, but in my personal relationships that why for some people it, it, it seems so difficult or so inauthentic. You know, it's interesting with couples in particular, what I find is their barrier is they feel like if they are validating their partner, they're almost taking responsibility for their experience. Mm -hmm. So if their partner is going, I feel angry, I feel disappointed, I feel sad. The other partner is going, I need to do something to fix this, or I've made them feel disappointed. I've made them sad. This is my fault. And then it it becomes really interesting because it's hard for them to then in nonviolent communication, Marshall Mm -hmm. Rosenberg has this saying that if, if I find to be just mind blowing, he says, we are not the cause of other people's responses. Mm -hmm. We're the stimulus for, for their response, Mm -hmm. but we are not the cause of it. Mm -hmm. So that means that we could do any behavior and because and the millions of different people could respond radically different to it. Mm-hmm. Like I could go, you know, I really, I really love your shirt. And somebody could see that as a compliment. Somebody could mm-hmm. see that as a threat. Somebody mm-hmm. can feel like that's their grandmother's shirt. And I just triggered them. I mean, mm-hmm. you could go in so many directions with it. So with couples, it's really important to be able to notice like your partner is a separate 
entity with their own schemas, right? Like their own core beliefs, Mm -hmm. their lenses, their perceptions, and how they take in information. And how could you approach it like an investigator that's really curious? Like what happened here? And how did this lead to that? And what made you Mm -hmm. feel disappointed in a way where you're not the cause of their experience and you're not responsible for changing it or fixing it? Because as soon as you validate, you just see the person feeling so much better. It's such a bummer that we get so stuck with that because the, the more we invalidate, the worse the person feels, the worse they feel, the more responsible we feel. And then we dig ourselves deeper and deeper. And then I think with couples, they go to defensiveness, which, you know, just brings in a whole nother problem. Well, I'm glad you talked about the schemas because that's what I wanted to talk about next. Um, I read your book, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy for Couples, that you co-author with Matthew McKay. And I, I really, really enjoyed it. And I told you before we started recording, there were so many things in there that's going to help me in my practice. And I want to dig in a little deeper for people who may not know anything about acceptance and commitment therapy. So can you talk a little bit about what it is and a little bit about the schemas? Yes. So schemas are core beliefs that we have about ourselves and others in relationships. They're kind of like attachment styles. They're Mm -hmm. like attachment wounds that lead to a certain belief. And they're kind of like lenses. So if we've developed a pair of sunglasses from our early childhood, this sunglasses now we're seeing the world through this lens. So you may have, there's 11 different schemas that I use. So some examples of these core beliefs are an abandonment schema where you believe you'll get abandoned or a mistrust abuse schema where you believe that you're going to get lied to or used or abused in some way, manipulated. There's an emotional deprivation schema. That's the belief that your needs are not going to get met in relationships There's a self-sacrifice schema, which is very common for women. There's Mm -hmm. also an entitlement schema, which is on the opposite side of the same coin. Mm -hmm. So often people with a self-sacrifice schema who have the belief that others' needs are more important than them. Mm -hmm. So they're selfish if they make themselves a priority. Mm -hmm. They tend to then partner up with people who have an entitlement schema. Mm -hmm. And their belief is that their own needs are more important than others. And so this creates this kind of a schema maintaining relationship. And these people are pulled towards each other because they're confirming each other's belief systems. The most common schema that I see people having right now is a unrelenting standard schema, perfectionism. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense in our society that many Mm -hmm. of us are perfectionists. Mm -hmm. And so the way we work with schemas is that We've developed these beliefs about ourselves and others in the world. Developing these was adaptive at some point because we don't develop these in a vacuum. So if we do have an abandonment schema or a mistrust abuse schema, most likely we were abandoned or we were lied to or manipulated. So at some point this happened and we learned certain coping mechanisms as a way to cope with this experience. So for example, let's imagine my mom is very distant and unavailable And I've developed the belief that my needs don't get met in relationships. And then in moments where I become really escalated and hysterical and upset, in those moments, I get her to take care of me. Now I've developed this mechanism of Mm -hmm. becoming over-escalating and dysregulated. 
mm-hmm. when my needs don't get met. And now when I do that in my current adult relationships, I recreate the same pattern that I'm afraid of. So we create these self-fulfilling prophecies when we use the old behaviors that we've learned to cope with these beliefs. So if I have an abandonment schema and I have a sensitivity to filtering moments of being rejected, and then when I feel the experience of abandonment, it brings up certain automatic thoughts, feelings, sensations, and I'm believing my partner's going to leave me or they're rejecting me or they're cheating on me. I have all of these stories connected to my abandonment. And then I behave in such a way where I'm seeking excessive reassurance. I'm texting them. I'm, I'm going, where are you? I'm accusing them. Where are you? Where have you been? Why don't you call me? Are you with her? Are you doing this? The more accusational I am, the more I'm pulling the other person to distance or reject mm-hmm. or abandon me confirming the very thing that I fear. Yeah. Wow. That's the best explanation I've heard of these. You're very articulate. And I mean, obviously we all have them, right? Because our childhood experiences, I will often work with couples and I kind of start to dig into what their parents' marriage was like, what their childhood was like. And they'll always say, oh, I, well, not always. Often, right. <laughs> um, I had a great childhood. I had this and that. And then the more and more we talk, we see, you know, some of these patterns that emerge and, and they do bring them to their adult relationships. And sometimes they bring them in a similar way. And sometimes they bring them almost in that opposite reactive, adaptive, you know, protective way. When you work with clients, do you find that they're pretty able to see their own schema and and I was as I was reading through some of your I mean there's some great questionnaires and some intakes in here and exercises for people to do to gain better understanding but are they pretty aware of them once they do these or do they see one and as as a professional do you see oh no really you're this so I will say that a I have a schema questionnaire on my website so oh, good I- so if you go to bayareacbtcenter.com mm-hmm. or cbtonline.com, there is a schema questionnaire, a relationship schema questionnaire, and there's also a schema questionnaire, a workplace schema questionnaire. Yeah. These are incredibly accurate. So if I have a couple that's coming to me for therapy and I see their schema questionnaires before I meet with them, I, I could tell 90% of what's happening in their relationship. It's extremely wow. accurate. I, I, I could predict so much of their dynamics and how they're going to show up and what issues they have. So it's such an effective tool. Also, it is really important that that the people that are taking the questionnaire agree with it. I don't use the schemas if they don't agree with it. It's just not helpful. I rarely have had a moment. I've given this out hundreds and hundreds of times, and I could count on my hand the number of people that didn't agree. I think it's two. Mm. So... You know, schemas are not what's important to remember is that they're not facts. They're not a personality test or, right, like they are just telling you what you believe. So it's very unlikely for somebody to be, right, labeling their own beliefs and going, no, 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 I don't believe this. Yeah. So most of the time it really resonates with people. And if it doesn't resonate, there's no point in using it. So if you're looking at a schema questionnaire and it doesn't look like you, you know, it's a map. And it's meant to use your own language and and make it your own. So when I look at a schema questionnaire 
and it can give you uh, an idea about a person's personality. So there's mm-hmm. certain themes that can be related to narcissism or borderline personality disorder. Yeah. So it does like abandonment. <laughs> right. It does not represent facts about you. Right. It represents what you believe about yourself. Like for example, yeah. somebody could have a dependency schema and be a very autonomous person. They could actually be the opposite. They could be excessively independent right. with the belief that they're dependent. Yeah. Yeah. So we know that our schemes trigger us. And then obviously they're the lens through which we're looking at all of our relationships. I'm thinking this probably friendship too, like whether you get overly close or you keep people at a distance or how you handle conflict in your friendship. And and then they impact all, I would say probably, is it all our responses to our partner or mostly like conflictual responses to our partner? Do you think that it guides all of our behavior in relationships or just like when, when certain things trigger us or conflicts? I think it's in the background at all times because mm-hmm. it also, it's the filter by which we get triggered. So, mm-hmm. gotcha. okay. But really the automatic thoughts, feelings, sensations, right? That all comes out in moments when we are triggered. So, but you know what? I think I think it's in the background all the time. Like if we're yeah. watching a movie, we're kind of projecting our own schemas into how this movie is going to unfold. So it's yeah. it's deeply ingrained in us. Yeah. And and it causes us a lot of pain, but on another level, schemas are really familiar and safe. They fool our minds into thinking that there's some level of predictability and certainty, right? And rules, like if I do this, this will happen. So yeah. they're very hard to to shape and let go of. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. So you identify what they are and you identify the impact they're having on a relationship. Then how do we learn new ways of responding or new ways of interacting? Because I, I think it would be really hard to change that lens, but we can change how we respond. Right. That's exactly it is I, I integrate acceptance and commitment therapy and cognitive Mm -hmm. behavioral therapy techniques Mm-hmm. And, you know, much of the third wave behavioral treatments, I think most therapy in our field right now, we're all moving towards uh, away from the idea that we could change thoughts, feelings and sensations or that we have mm-hmm. to kind of uh, find evidence for and against our automatic thoughts and shape them and challenge them. We're moving away from that and mm-hmm. we're moving towards the idea of we could have the same thought and still do a different behavior with that thought. And that means doing experiential exercises and Mm -hmm. metaphors. It's very active and and experiential. And Mm -hmm. we help people change their relationship to their minds and to their feelings. So we do certain exercises like diffusion is exercises around making distance from certain automatic thoughts and distance from the mind so that we're kind of noticing that our minds can be like commercials or sales representatives and that they're trying to sell us all old products that are no longer, that we don't have to buy into. And we teach Mm -hmm. people how to not buy into these thoughts, not so that the thoughts go away, but that that the thoughts have less influence in our actions. Mm -hmm. And so we do diffusion and mindfulness to help Mm -hmm. work with the mind. And then we do emotion exposure, self-compassion techniques, emotion regulation techniques, to help us make friends with our emotions, kind of make space for emotions. Notice where in our body do we feel our emotion most intensely? What does it feel like physically in our bodies? 
what shape do they have? What color do they have? Is there movement? But we're doing a whole exercise to help people make space for all of the difficult sensations and feelings that show up. And basically, the more we experiment with these kinds of things, we teach people to look rather than from the lens, like if your glasses are on like this and you're looking at the world through the glasses, we're teaching mm-hmm. them to kind of take off the glasses and look at the glasses rather than mm-hmm. through the glasses. And when you, when you could look at the glasses and have this kind of perspective, then it gives you all this freedom, freedom to do something differently. So as a cognitive behavioral therapist, you know, many people come to my office thinking like, I don't want to feel this way and I don't want to think like this. And they think that I could just kind of do some sort of <laughs> surgery in their brain and make it stop. Mm-hmm. But the reality of it actually is that we have to do different behaviors and get different responses and disconfirm these beliefs in the long run to actually have them change. So I, I help people do different behaviors first. And that mm-hmm. changes your thoughts and your feelings as opposed to the other way around. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm thinking so many things as you talk. First of all, I can tell you're so good at what you do and that you really Aww. are passionate about it. I love your examples. They're so clear for people and so applicable. But I was thinking this would be really good for people pre-commitment, you know, like for couples to do right. before they get married or before they move in together, before they commit to one another, because you sort of figure out, for lack of a better word, all the baggage <laughs> that's Absolutely. coming to the relationship. And you can sort that out early on. Absolutely. It's always better to prevent, right? To, to prevent rather than to solve once it's already become a problem. Yeah, because that's my biggest stumbling block. I would say like, I definitely started out my career wanting to work with couples. I actually did my doctorate in marriage and family communication and then went back and did my counseling work after I, I was a university professor in teaching communication because I felt like so many of the problems were in the way we communicate things to one another. But I get really frustrated and I do a lot of parenting coaching now. And I enjoy that so much because parents are so motivated to improve that relationship. By Mm. the time a lot of couples come to me, they're so resentful, they're so disconnected that the motivation to sort of do this work and make these changes is pretty low. Mm-hmm. Not always, but sometimes. You know, when I hit that barrier, what I do is, is I help couples recognize that the work that they do with each other right now will impact their relationships, whether they stay with each other or they're with somebody else. So mm-hmm. we are constantly building neuronal connections. So Mm -hmm. if, for example, I have a self-sacrifice schema Mm -hmm. and in moments when I feel guilty, guilt shows up for me, I then give in or give up or surrender or do something I don't want to do. So my friend, you know, asks me, you know, can I borrow a thousand dollars? And I start feeling guilty. And then I go, yes, here's the money. And then I, the guilt goes away. So it's it's Mm -hmm. like our schema coping behaviors, the behaviors we've learned to do with these core beliefs are almost like addictions, right? They're like, mm-hmm. we're taking a hit and then we feel better in the moment, but then in the long yeah. run, we need more and more of it. And now, so now I'm giving into this addiction and I'm building these neuronal connections and this addiction in me. And that shows up in all of my relationships. 
So if I have difficulty saying no to my partner in this relationship, I'm going to have difficulty saying no to my boss, difficulty saying no to my friends, right? It, it, it shows up in all of these domains. So even if I would say to couples, even if you're not motivated to make this relationship better, identifying your values and the kind of person you want to be and the kind of partner you want to be and starting to build those habits is going to help all of your relationships and your future relationships. Sure. Because you're the common denominator. (laughs) I tell them that all the time. It's true. And even if they decide to to go separate ways, it'll still help them as co-parents or you know, the, you're bringing your stuff to the next relationship. Yeah, I, I tell people that all the time. I just find, and you know what I think, Dr. Liv? I think people think they're motivated to work on their relationship, oh, yeah. <laughs> right? But sometimes when it comes down to doing the work, it's a lot because like you said, a lot of this work is facing past traumas or past hurts to see how they got to where they are. And I think a lot of people, it's painful. You know, it's really painful to look at that and recognize it and recognize how it shaped you. It is very painful and it's unavoidable, whether it's with this person, this partner, or whether it's with your kids or whether it's with your boss whether it's with your parents or your friends, that the same pain gets triggered. Doing that work is unavoidable or facing that pain is unavoidable. It really is. And it's not enough to say, I'm going to do it differently. We have to understand the schema. We have to understand all the complexities of it. Because a lot of people say, I'm going to do it differently. They recognize the pain, but they don't necessarily know how to do it differently. And then they don't realize some of those automatic triggers that they might have. And that's the main difference for me in relation to being a behavioral therapist versus yeah. being a more insight focused therapist. Right, because right. I don't believe that insight alone could lead to behavioral yeah. change. We all know yeah. the experience of knowing what you're doing wrong or knowing where you're stuck and continuing to do the same bad habit. So the most important piece after you're understanding what's going on is working on the barriers and doing the experiential exercises that help people behave differently. And it's working on the barriers. If it's a, an emotion that's acting as a barrier, we trigger it, we bring it on and we expose mm-hmm. to it. And if it's a thought, we work with it, we identify where the value is and how it acts in a barrier and what behaviors it stops you from doing. And we work on making space from it and having it just be less influenceable, less strong. It's still there, but it's kind of like, you know, background music in an elevator. You're you're not a big fan of it, but it doesn't have to like impact you so much. Mm-hmm. So it's it's mm-hmm. kind of like that. One thing that I like to do with couples when you were saying who are not motivated to change, it's a little bit difficult because people don't see, but I like to have them write down all of their values uh, mm-hmm. because the values are the, the guideline or the compass for how we want to behave differently. So mm-hmm. they are, you know, like the North star, they're guiding us. We're moving mm-hmm. every action we take either moves us closer or further away from the kind of partner that we want to be. Mm-hmm. So, so for example, if I want to be honest and assertive and kind. Those are like a set of values. Every behavior I do, I ask myself, did that move me closer to being assertive and honest and kind, or did it move me away from that? Mm. And if I say to you, you ask me, how does this dress look? And I go, ah, you you look awful in it. 
then I moved towards maybe honesty, but I didn't really move towards kindness. So it's always a set of values that we want to be thinking about and moving towards. So I'll have couples write down all of their values, like being cooperative, being loving, being kind, being compassionate, being cooperative, being consistent, being humorous, giving examples, right? Being, being fair, being consistent. Those are some examples. We, we write them down. And then I have them rate themselves from zero to 100. And then I have them rate their partner from zero to 100. How consistent have your actions been with this particular value? So if, you're, if you have a list of 10 values and you notice that you're rating yourself very low, you give yourself a 40% out of 100 on assertiveness, a 50% out of 100 on being kind or being compassionate, let's say 25% on being collaborative, and then you see all your partner's scores are really low too. They're like 40% on kind or 25% con- uh, on honesty. The dilemma is that often couples, so you have a partner and they get stuck in their relationship because they're noticing, well, look how low all my, my partner's scores are. My partner's not kind. My partner's not honest. My partner's not consistent. My partner's not this. And they're wanting their partner to change. But as long as your own scores are low, you'll always be wondering, is it my partner or is it the relationship? Yeah. Right? Is it, is it because I'm not bringing these things to the table or is yeah. it that I'm with the wrong person? And then you get stuck behaving the same way, doing the same things and not ending the relationship. Yeah. So I always say to couples, why don't you first work on yourself, on your column, get yourself all to high 80s and 90% right out of 100 Mm-hmm. And once you're all at 90s on all of your values, then you could start assessing the relationship. Because most likely, if you get yourself to 80s and 90s, 90% of the time, your partner will also. If you're yep. being compassionate, if you're being kind, if you're being honest, if you're being assertive, if you're being consistent, collaborative, cooperative, if you're doing all the and humorous, your partner mm-hmm. will join along. And if they don't, if you don't see any changes, then at least you have clarity. At least you can then do the behavior of ending a relationship and seeing on paper that it's just not workable. You've Mm -hmm. done all you could and the relationship still hasn't changed. But as long as you keep doing the same thing, you'll always be on that fence. You'll always be wondering. That's fabulous. I do something very, very similar. And, and you're right. It really gives people clarity either way. And, and you're also right in that nine times out of 10, once they start giving more to the relationship, the relationship improves. Kindness begets kindness. And it's, it's just, you know, it's sometimes hard. You know, we learn very early on that a relationship is a dynamic. But a lot of people in it just don't see it that way. You right. know, they don't see the relationship as this interactive dynamic and that every change they make is going to change the relationship. Right. Because we're constantly training people how to treat us and what works and what doesn't and what we accept and what we don't. It was I saw this article a long time ago about this woman writing about how she saved her marriage by doing like um, dolphin therapy on her husband, like behavioral whale therapy. And I thought it was so interesting because we really don't notice how much reward and punishment we're giving certain behaviors. And then mm-hmm. it increases those behaviors in our relationships. So, you know, if you're, if you're asking your partner to do the dishes and they say they're going to do it by 9 p.m. and then it's like 9.04 and they didn't do the dishes and you start doing the dishes... 
now you've just rewarded them not doing the dishes. Yeah, yeah. Kind of, I'm going to bring this back to the beginning of toxic positivity. As we were talking, and I, I just learned so much from you today, what schema does that kind of connect with? I would say that it's it, it depends. So, so somebody could be engaging in toxic positivity because they feel defective, right? Or d- defectiveness, uh-huh. shame, and okay. they feel bad. And so they're hiding it. Uh-huh. Or somebody could do it because they have a social alienation schema, right? They feel different from everybody, oh, yeah. a sense of unbelonging, okay. and they want to fit in. So they mm-hmm. may engage in that just to feel more of a sense of belonging and, and okay. inclusion. Yeah. Uh, somebody with a perfectionism schema may do it to, to, to look good and not disappoint others. Somebody mm-hmm. with a self-sacrifice schema, they may do it because they don't want other people to feel bad, right? Yeah. So that it, that's what's so interesting about schemas is that you could see the same behavior, but it has yeah. a different function. It comes from a different place. Yeah, yeah. And oh, it makes a big difference wonderful. how to work on it, right? Because yeah, you would yeah. work on all of these, the same exact behavior differently. Right, right. Wow, so enlightening. So I'm going to switch gears here for just a second because whenever I have someone who works with couples. I always want to see their input on this question because my whole podcast is about connecting. It's called Connecting with Dr. Kim Swales. And one of the biggest problems I see, I've been married, oh, it'll be 26 years next month. And, you know, like every couple, we have our ups and downs. People always say to me, oh, you must have the best marriage because of what you do. And I'm like, I have a normal marriage. Yes, right. I'm very happy. And But there are times in every marriage, even if you are communicating well, and you kind of do recognize the triggers and the schemas and and you change your responses that you just feel disconnected because of life, because of careers, because of kids. And I'm always trying to find ways and, and offer advice to listeners on how they can reconnect. Do you have any suggestions for that? I'll play with this a little bit because yeah. it's a general question. And so it, it, I would need more specifics to know yeah. what would work for different people. But in the general <laughs> sense, you know, I think that on one level, it's really important to have behavioral consistency and follow through and communication and be able to verbalize things. But then I think connection also has this non-verbal place, Right. Like, I think polyvagal theory is really interesting Mm -hmm. in the sense that you're helping two people co-regulate and you're doing Mm -hmm. things like putting your hand on their heart and they put Mm -hmm. their hand on your heart and you kind of breathe in sync and you could do different Mm -hmm. breathing exercises in sync. You could even have one partner hold the others like their heart with one hand and their back mm-hmm. with their mm-hmm. other hand. So they're kind of pushing in and sending. Yeah. There's something really interesting about working a little bit energetically. So I'm very behavioral. So I like to make requests, right? And come up mm-hmm. with agreements and negotiate. Mm-hmm. And I go into how, how you negotiate. You think about what is your ideal and what is intolerable. And so mm-hmm. I, I love all of these things. But then I think what you're getting to is that there's this real nonverbal piece of almost like an existential isolation, an existential distance between you Mm -hmm. and someone else that's never, will never be satisfied. 
And I think for that, it's more about things like making eye contact, doing these breathing exercises when you breathe in, the other person breathes out, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it creates this a, a more energetic flow. Yeah. Sometimes it's good to share your feelings. It's, sometimes it's good to, you know, have somebody just put their hand on your heart and you just say, I feel the sadness or I feel this yeah. experience that I can't describe, but can you just be here? Can you just witness yeah. this? Can we just stay in this? And there's something very I, powerful about that. I love that. That's the first time I've gotten that suggestion. And I've been looking right now for, for someone to come in and talk about polyvagal nerves. And yeah, so I love that. I love that. I love that. And I did a post a while ago about that. And and and, and it's just so powerful how you can synchronize your heart rate and your breathing with your partner and how that calms your whole body down. So that's a great suggestion and something every single person can do, you know, and it involves some vulnerability. And I think sometimes when people aren't connecting, it's because their walls are up. And so you kind of have to pull your walls down to, to get that level of energetic connection with someone. Awesome. This is the advice that I would give someone who, like you said, is, is doing well in all these other areas, right? Like you are negotiating and you're expressing yourself, you're having, you know, things are in place. There isn't, mistrust or, or right. Like, yeah, there's not a lot of pain. There's just, you know, the everydayness of just being with someone. Right. And, and it it Mm -hmm. feels a little, um, just like you again. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Well, or people just get busy. I find like a lot of it is, is people, their communication is good. There's not anger. They've sort of figured things out, but you know, they're not making time or they're not putting that energy or having the physical connection. So that's a really great suggestion. Where can our listeners find you? Because I know they're going to want to, and I will link your website, but just if you could tell our listeners, and do you have anything exciting you're working on now? Yes, I am working on a couple of webinars and online courses. So I just I just finished this online course for working with uh, people who have survived being in a narcissistic relationship. I'm talking about abuse that shows up in relationships, covert abuse and emotional abuse. That's a little bit more difficult to identify. So I have that. And we're working on another online course to work with couples where there's a personality disorder and also integrating acceptance and commitment therapy with attachment styles. So I really like kind of turning psychodynamic theories into more behavioral protocols and interventions. And people can find those all on your website? Yes, it would be on www.cbtonline.com and also bayareacbtcenter.com. And I also have the questionnaires on my website. There's worksheets. There's mindfulness audio for exercises like this. Lots of worksheets and, and, and tools for people to use who are maybe not in a therapy, but want to do some of their own self-work. Yeah. And I took a look in my preparation for our interview and it's it's really good. There's so many valuable pieces of information on there. So we will direct people to your website. Yeah. Webinars, e-courses, videos, worksheets, mindfulness, all of that. Thank you so much for your time. And we'll also put the links to your book in the show notes. So thank you very much. This has been really, really informative. Thank you for having me. Yes. It was a lot of fun. I had a good time chatting with you. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Connecting with Dr. Kim Swales. 
Hopefully, you've heard something that will help you as you continue to navigate the connections in your everyday relationships. If you'd like to connect with me on Instagram, you can follow me at Dr. Kim Swales or check out my website, www.kimswales.com. I'd also love if you would click subscribe and leave a positive review or a five-star rating for the podcast, as well as share it with your friends and family. The material in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. If you are in need of medical or psychological counsel, please seek a licensed professional in your area. 